right, ladies, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, instead of taking your notebooks and flipping them over to uh, review our disciplines today, I thought we might just open them up to, I think it's, well, mine is num page number two, but it's just the calendar of this last year of 2023, or 22, 23, Wellspring. And I thought I would just refresh us on some of the topics that we've covered this year. It seems like a long time ago when I look back at that first one, when we talked about the vision and purpose of Wellspring and talked about the vision and purpose of our church. Um, that was all the way back in, was that, yeah, September. So I thought I'd just do this. If Hopefully you've already thought of something that you'd like to share maybe after SMED does our lesson this morning, but this might even just remind you of some other topics that you might have forgotten about um, that really were meaningful. So we've talked about the gospel implications for our heart, which is basically summed up in this little blue pamphlet, um, just our hearts before and after salvation. Um, Smed walked us through like the four panels that are actually three panels in this, but there's four <laughs> in reality. Um, we talked about women encouraging women from Titus 2. That was Chris Evans. Um, building our homes with God's word from Deuteronomy 6 and honor actually did we flip-flop those I don't remember now if it was Sarah or Chris I feel like at the last moment we flip-flopped them but anyway still had those lessons honoring the Lord in our Bible reading that was when Scott came and talked about how we can come to God's word every day um, just what our hearts need to be like um, even some practical tips for how to study God's word and then Lori Hantla came and taught about shepherding our hearts through the day. Um, you'll remember we have those spirals of um, kind of sinking down or how we need to just take our thoughts captive and start thinking truth and uh, not demanding things of God. That was in that lesson. Um, caring for one another in the body of Christ, the first Thessalonians 5.14, um, admonishing the unruly, helping the weak, um, encouraging the faint-hearted. And then Jacob came and taught on our theme verse, Proverbs 4.23, guarding our hearts. And then we got into the new year, and we had um, that really good lesson on peacemaking. Um, Jenna Kelso came and taught on that, how to respond to conflict biblically. Um, then we had, I think this is where we also had a flip-flop. We started, I think it was Omri on prayer, and that was really good, just talking about how to pray. Um, it was a really practical, helpful lesson. Um, then we had Jacob come again, and he taught on hospitality. And then Sarah taught on biblical womanhood. We had Scott Demarest come back and teach on biblical decision-making. This is all becoming a lot more recent in our memories. Cameron came and did a survey of the women in the Bible. And then last time we were together, Melissa taught us on Proverbs 14.1, building up or tearing down our homes. So anyway, just to help you think through that, of course you've heard the disciplines over and over um, through the year. Hopefully you have those very well tucked away in your memories, in your hearts. So before Smed comes and teaches, I thought I would just read to you from The Valley of Vision. Um, I love this book. I feel like every time I'm up here, probably I read a prayer from here. This one, the prayer I want to read today is called God Honored. Oh God, praise waiteth for thee and to render it is my noblest exercise. This is thy due from all thy creatures, for all thy works display thy attributes and fulfill thy designs. The sea, dry land, winter cold, 
summer heat, morning light, evening shade, are full of thee, and thou givest me them richly to enjoy. Thou art King of kings and Lord of lords, at thy pleasure empires rise and fall. All thy works praise thee and thy saints bless thee. Let me be numbered with thy holy ones, resemble them in character and condition, sit with them at Jesus' feet. May my religion be always firmly rooted in thy word, my understanding divinely informed, my affections holy and heavenly, my motives simple and pure, and my heart never wrong with these, or with thee. Deliver me from the natural darkness of my own mind, from the corruptions of my heart, from the temptations to which I am exposed, from the daily snares that attend me. I am in constant danger while I am in this life. Let thy watchful eye ever be upon me for my defense. Save me from the power of my worldly and spiritual enemies and from all painful evils to which I have exposed myself. Until the day of life dawns above, let there be unrestrained fellowship with Jesus. Until fruition comes, may I enjoy the earnest of my inheritance and the first fruits of the Spirit. Until I finish my course with joy, may I pursue it with diligence. In every part, display the resources of the Christian and adorn the doctrine of thee, my God, in all things. So Smed is going to come and he'll teach us on hardness of heart, which is, I'll let him explain, cardiosclerosis. Um, but this is our last session for the year. So um, hope you guys enjoy. And then I'm looking forward to hearing from you after he's done. What time do I finish? You finish at 10.30, right? Great. Well, good morning. It's a delight to be with you. And uh, in this closing session of Wellspring for the year. And uh, I'm going to pray and we'll dive into this topic. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We acknowledge with our lips that you are good. But we know this to be true from Scripture. We who know you also know this by experience. And we pray, O oh God, that we would see your goodness, that we would delight in your goodness. And that that would be so compelling, so captivating, so magnetic, that all other things would pale in comparison. Oh God, keep us from the distractions, keep us from the competing loves that still infect us at the heart level. God, we, we know that you are good. We know that lesser things will not satisfy and yet you also know us, you know our hearts, you know our thoughts, you know how easily we are enticed, how easily we stray. And we fear, and we want to fear to a greater degree, the dangers of walking away from you. Keep us, O oh Lord, in the faith, and may we cling to you by your power and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning just thinking about the goodness of the Lord. The psalmist said, taste and see that Yahweh is good. We have this testimony in Psalm 84. The psalmist writes, Yahweh God is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
O Yahweh of hosts, how supremely happy is the man who trusts in you. It's true that when we sin, we are choosing to turn our backs on the goodness of God, that which is good intrinsically in him, but also in the goodness that radiates out from who he is. When we sin, we are turning our backs on that which benefits us most. Knowledge of him, love of him, experiencing love in him. Think about the gracious invitation in Isaiah 55, which I have labeled the promise of the Bible. There God says, yo, come to me, all who are thirsty. Don't go buy stuff that can't satisfy. Don't spend your money on that which will not fulfill. Come to me. That's God's invitation. That, of course, is fulfilled when you get to the end of your Bible. And the refrain of Isaiah 55 is recounted in the new heavens and the new earth. And God makes the promise. I am here. Behold, uh, come and drink freely. Uh, All of these things display God's goodness. Uh, I think about what it means to fellowship with God in, in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve before there was sin. And then what it means to fellowship in the eternal state for all redeemed believers. We we will never have access to bad. Uh, We will only be surrounded by, enveloped in the goodness of God. And and here in this in-between time, uh, we experience evils. Not only moral evil, but physical calamity. And we feel the resident evil in our own hearts. That residual depravity that is allied with Satan and the world against the God who is good. There's a war on in the Christian life. Uh, That's a a big part of what Wellspring is all about. How do I cultivate cultivate the disciplines required to fight this battle well? Jesus said the definition of eternal life in John 17, 3, it is to know God and the one whom he has sent. God is intrinsically good. What is it like in your own life when you begin to doubt the goodness of God? When you begin to besmirch his character in your heart, grow embittered toward him. You don't like the hand that he has dealt in a given moment. What is it like in, in your heart when spirituality becomes stale, stagnant? When seeking God is boring compared to other pursuits? That's what we want to address this morning. We're, we're essentially talking about what it means to have an encroaching hardness of heart. The title for today's lesson is cardiosclerosis. It's a combination of two Greek words, cardia for heart and sclerosis, meaning hardness. You, you know about sclerosis. We, we hear this word as a medical term. Sclerosis of the liver is a hardening of liver tissue. It's supposed to be soft and pliable. The liver stops working when it gets hard. You've heard of arteriosclerosis. That's when the arteries that carry blood throughout your body begin to get hard. They no longer function the way that they should. And and cardiosclerosis, a very dangerous condition, uh, is that tissue of the heart begins in patches to be not pliable, not flexible. The heart is a muscle. It's supposed to be able to move. And when portions of the heart get hard, the heart cannot function. This sclerocardia or cardiosclerosis or another definition of it in the medical world is induration. 
It refers to an increase in the fibrous elements of tissue that are commonly associated with inflammation and results in a marked lack of elasticity and pliability. You can get a portion of your heart, a, a hardened formation that causes the heart to begin to fail. What does this look like as a metaphor for a spiritual condition? I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 3. You know that the heart in your Bible is not a reference to the organ which pumps blood throughout the body, but is a description of that metaphysical organ, the internal command and control center of who you are. The heart determines uh, how you feel, what you think, what you choose to do. It's the, the mind, the emotions, and the will. It's the internal you. It is what transcends your physical existence. And this heart is to be directed towards God. Your heart is what determines what happens on the outside. And here this warning in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, is this. Take care, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There you see both those ideas in the same passage, a hardening and the importance of directing our hearts. We're going to talk about the dangers and the causes and the remedies of cardiosclerosis this morning. Let's talk first about some of the dangers of hard-heartedness. They are there in your notes, and there are passages attached to those. We're going to be scanning as sort of a survey the theology of hard-heartedness. So turn first to 1 Timothy chapter 1. The first danger of hard-heartedness is a weakened conscience. A weakened conscience. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul is encouraging Timothy, his protege, to, by the promises of God, fight the good fight, verse 19, keeping faith and keeping a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. What happens when your heart gets hard, when, when the encroaching non-pliability of your spirit before the Lord gains ground? Uh, you'll be on shorter accounts with sin. Uh, you won't have a, a tenderness towards that which violates God's character or his precepts. And it's an interesting phenomenon that happens if you are not tender toward the Lord when you sin. You have to do something else with your sin. You, you sort of move on with life. If you're not on a short account with God, if you're not confessing, if you're not digging up sin by the roots, if you're not examining the soil in which those rooted sins have grown, but you just say, ah, I'll move on. You plaster over your conscience when you do that. You've given up fighting the good fight. And the danger here is to make shipwreck of faith. And, and I've seen this time and again. 
And it's really interesting the psychology that happens, especially in a Bible teaching church with the gospel at the center of everything we do. We hear the gospel, we sing the gospel, we believe the gospel, we rehearse the gospel, 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 gospel. And I'm not on short accounts with sin. I plaster over my conscience. And what happens? I'm not fighting sin. I, I give in to sin. Sin increases. It's a snowball effect. Some have said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Cost you more than you're willing to pay. And you see the, the gravitational pull of sin on the increase when you stop fighting. When you stop confessing. And eventually what happens, you begin to say, well, I guess the gospel doesn't work. I've heard the gospel, sung the gospel, rehearsed the gospel. Everybody talks gospel, gospel, gospel. It doesn't have any power over my sin. And we begin to blame the gospel of God for the snowball effect of our own failure to keep short accounts with sin. This, friends, is the pathway to rejecting the gospel. And listen, you get on this pathway every time you sin. Do you recognize that, Christian? And, and you've no doubt probably sinned this morning. And when we sin, we step onto that pathway, which is a trajectory towards a rejection of the gospel. And the whole battle in the Christian life is, oh, that's that pathway. I got to get back on God's pathway. It's a course correction. In our home, we're teaching kids to drive. We're in that phase of life, one after the other. And, and you know when you're learning to drive, maybe you don't remember it, maybe you've taught someone else to drive, and it comes back to your memories a little more importantly. Uh, there's the tendency to look down at the road. Where are those lines? Oh, yeah, i got to stay in those. The, the, the lines are down there, and, and, and the car is doing this. And the course corrections are happening all the time, sometimes by violent intervention. Grab the wheel. Son, I'm sorry, did I just betray a trust there of who's getting driving lessons? But eventually what you learn to do is make those course corrections much earlier. So a drastic move isn't needed. You know that when you're driving all the time, your eyes are up on the horizon. You're always making course corrections. You're not even thinking about it. But, but you're making them much smaller. The, the fight against sin is a growth in making those course corrections much closer to the sin itself. I'm on that pathway to apostasy. Don't steer my conscience don't plaster it over. Don't let my heart get hard. Get back on God's path quicker, sooner. Listen, you, you never get on cruise control in the Christian life. You just learn to fight earlier so that you don't have to fight bigger battles. You're always fighting. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 118, fight the good faith. And by contrast, really tragic story here. Paul names names in verse 19. Um, or in verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. In other words, they, they plastered over their conscience. They, they lost the battle over conscience. Their hearts were hard such that Paul had to hand them over to Satan for the sifting of their flesh. Probably a reference to church discipline, excommunication from the fellowship. You're going to say, I love sin more than Jesus? Well, you can't call yourself a Christian. It is the trajectory uh, that is so dangerous. Secondly, a weakened witness is a danger of hard-heartedness. Turn to Titus chapter 2. If our hearts get hard, our witness in the world is weakened. Look at verse 9. 
Titus 2. Paul says, Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grace of God appears teaching us to deny ungodliness and a life that is lived in accordance with the gospel that is proclaimed has a witness in the world did you see that in verse 9 the slaves are to be subject to their own masters they're to be well-pleasing they're not argumentative not pilfering showing all good faith so that verse 10 they will adorn the doctrine of god our savior in every respect to adorn the doctrine of god well does, does God's good doctrine need to be dressed up? The word here is cosmeto. We get our word cosmetics. Um, does, does God's truth need some help? Well, it, it certainly doesn't need to be hindered. And, and the good, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that we love, is marred when those who profess to believe it live contrary. Given that the gospel comes in teaching us to deny ungodliness. So if believers are living uh, lives out of hard-heartedness, resulting in ungodly living, it actually makes the gospel look bad. And just know that hard-heartedness in your own life will manifest itself in your communication, in your behavior, in your affections, in the way you spend your time, in your susceptibility to distractions, temporal-mindedness, and sin. And all of that stuff on the outside denies the gospel, undermines the gospel. A third danger of hard-heartedness is a weakened church. Turn to Ephesians 4.16. I hope Ephesians 4.16 is a familiar verse. We, we come across this uh, a number of times in a number of different ways in this church. It is uh, become paradigmatic of how to live out the Christian life. And we see in Ephesians 4.16, the, the whole body, that is the church, being fitted and held together by the joints of supply, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body, the growth of the church, for the building up of itself in love. And in the context of Ephesians 4, we know that Jesus causes the church to grow. We know that uh, Jesus gives pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, uh, pastors and teachers are responsible for church growth. But here in verse 16, every individual believer has a part to play in the health of the church. And the church is here compared to a body, like a physical body. Interdependent parts that are connected to each other and depend upon each other for their well-being. When a part of a physical body goes bad, the whole body suffers. That's how the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be close enough to each other that when one part suffers, the rest suffers. If you're not connected vitally to the church, you're doing something wrong and you're stunting the growth of the church. And significantly for this discussion, 
The church grows according to the proper working of each individual part. Right there in the middle of verse 16. That means you, Christian, must not harden your heart. (laughs) To begin to fail functionally as an individual Christian has a deleterious effect on the whole body. And you know this, if you're hard-hearted, if you're embittered towards someone in the church, you're not going to be a cause of spiritual encouragement and growth to that person in the church. And that stunts the growth of the church as a whole. Just recognize that hardness of your heart is not a private matter between you and Jesus. It has very public societal effects. The society of the church, our, our, our social being, it's affected by how I cultivate pliability at the heart level. A fourth danger of hard-heartedness is decreasing delight in Christ. Turn to John 14. Jesus is, of course, the source of all true delight. To know him, to love him, is to live up to the very purpose for which you were created and redeemed. Anything short of him will ultimately be a disappointment. Right? We, we know this from life before Christ, if you, if you can remember back then. We know this from our lives in Christ where we have strayed and been tempted by lesser things, they never bring about what they promise. Idols always disappoint. Anything we elevate to the level of affection that Christ should have uh, only brings grief and sorrow. Here's what Jesus promises in John 14, 21. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. What does it mean to love Jesus? Do what he says. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. What is Jesus promising here? You stay on short accounts with the Lord. You keep a soft heart before the Lord, which results in obedience springing out of love for him. And Jesus promises real, intimate, experiential fellowship with the triune God. You want an experience with God? It's not going to come by ginning up emotion with the right sets of songs and, uh, you know, having some sort of mystical experience. You want real intimate fellowship and experience with God. It comes by subjecting yourself to the knowledge of God and his word, being obedient to the things that he has said from the heart. And Jesus promises, I will disclose myself to that one. It's a fairly simple recipe. But you don't get to intimate relational joy in Christ around obedience. And you hinder relational intimacy with Christ by disobedience. Uh, Particularly the disobedience that just coasts in the disobedience. Unbroken patterns of sin. This is the real issue of hard-heartedness. It's not whether or not a Christian sins, but what do you do next? Right? Are you staying on short accounts, sensitive to the Lord, eager to repent? A fifth danger of hard-heartedness is a faltering assurance. Turn to Romans 8.
I mean here assurance of salvation. That is the confidence that is the right of a believer in Jesus Christ to have. I know I'm going to heaven. Why? Because Jesus died for me and I belong to him. Uh, That's assurance of salvation. It is the subjective impression that you're actually a Christian and that Christians are secure in Christ. Now, the eternal security of a believer is objective. It's outside of you. It's rock solid. It's locked away in Fort Knox, can never be taken away. So the the relationship between eternal security and assurance of salvation is interesting because eternal security never goes away for the elect, foreknown from the foundation of the world, pre-loved by God and his plan, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, called in time, declared righteous and glorified. Past tense verb for a future reality because it's locked up. Nobody falls out through the cracks. There's no breaks in the chain of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. But your assurance of salvation comes and goes. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I'm not going to make it. And sometimes you cry out, Abba, Father, I belong to you. And, And it is the right of a Christian to have assurance of salvation. But it is not guaranteed when we're not on short accounts with sin. Uh, Look at what how this is conveyed in Romans eight, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice verse 14 starts with an explanatory conjunction, a a four. I'm going to tell you the reason that verse 13 is true. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, tender word for daddy, father. This is personal. The spirit himself, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, suffering with him, being glorified with him. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit is, I belong to God. He's my father. He loves me. I'm adopted. I'm in his family. Can't be disowned. Now, in what venue does the spirit internally witness to that reality in the heart of a believer. Uh, Back up to verse 13. The one who by the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the body. What is the leading of the Spirit in verse 14? Is the leading of the Spirit some sort of mystical divining rod? You know what a divining rod is? A stick shaped in a Y that Midwestern farmers used to try to find water with? You know, um, there was another name for that. I can't remember what it was. The witching stick or something like that. Water witches, that's what they were. They were called uh, water witches and water witching was the way to find water with a, you know. Is that the way the spirit works? Some sort of, where should I go? What should I buy? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Feelings, impressions. That's not the leading of the spirit. Leading of the spirit very clearly here is being led by the spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. And everybody who's doing that, if you, by the power of the spirit of God, are putting to death the deeds of the body, then that spirit who is in you cries out your belonging to Jesus. I know I'm his. How do I know I'm his? Verse 14, because of verse 13, he's alive in me. 
He is leading me to put to death the deeds of the body. Things I would not do naturally. I'm naturally drawn to sin. That's how I was born. That's in my genes. It, it, it is residual even in my believing life. I, I, my, my old nature just wants to pull me towards natural things. But the Spirit of God is alive in me and making me do things unnatural, supernatural, Christward. So what happens when we sear over our consciences and we allow hardness of heart to take over? Uh, you actually don't have any right to assurance. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. There was a lot of convoluted, polluted activity going on at Corinth. They didn't necessarily at the individual level have a right to assurance. So examine yourselves, see if you're in the faith. What are you supposed to look for? Well, I prayed a prayer when I was five. My mom told me I was a Christian. I've always been a part of this denomination. Whatever, we come up with all kinds of unbiblical schemes to locate assurance. When assurance of our security is found right here. Is there a vitality of soft-hearted spiritual life before the Lord? What's the evidence of that in Romans 8? The Spirit of God leading you to put to death deeds of the body. Soft-heartedness goes away. Assurance goes away. Another danger of hard-heartedness is a vicious cycle. Turn to Galatians 6. This one's really scary. Sometimes we think cause and effect uh, in, in an immediate sense. You know, I, I decided to jump off of a six-story building and uh, it hurt. <laughs> That's a pretty immediate cause and effect. Galatians 6 gives a little bit of a delayed cause and effect that I think we lose sight of. Uh, this is really important for us to see because it's the result of hard-heartedness with a delayed fuse. Uh, look, at, look at what Galatians 6 says. Do not be deceived, verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And you've got to put your farmer's hat on a little bit here. And, and if you're a gardener or a farmer, if you've you know, put uh, zucchini plants in the ground and you just can't wait until you get one of those big giant zucchinis from your garden and you can cut it up and saute it in a pan. It's just awesome. But you, farming is not a matter of immediate gratification. It's slow work. It's patient work. It, it's diligent, hard labor to farm or to garden. You, you, you plant, you fertilize, you weed, you water. And in the end, can you make a zucchini? God causes the growth. The farmer has to wait on the Lord. You, you can't actually get in a laboratory and just make a zucchini. We, we grow so accustomed to going to Trader Joe's. It's just there. I'm going to get one. I'm going to take it home and saute it. Farming is different. And, and that's a farming in a positive sense. Think about it in a negative sense. Uh, you, you throw bad weed seed onto your lawn. I don't see the consequence of that. Man, I, I threw out all these bad weed seeds in my yard and nothing happened. I woke up the next day, there weren't weeds. It's kind of fun throwing these things around. Let's throw some more. 
Next day, still nothing. You got to think farmer. You put down bad seed to the flesh. You may not have a consequence this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day or the next week. But those seeds are in the ground. And if you live in an unbroken chain of a, of a season of sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap a large harvest down the road. This is a very real danger of hard-heartedness. What you're doing right now when you're allowing hard-heartedness to encroach is actually producing hard-heartedness for the future. What you sow, you will reap. Sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. More of the same. And then what happens when all those dandelions sprout up? They go yellow. Oh, that's pretty. Wildflowers. Actually, the plants are kind of ugly, and I don't want those here. I wanted grass. You, you can mow over the top of them. You haven't killed the plants. Now you have lots of work to uproot. Uproot plants that wouldn't have been there if you hadn't sown seeds. So you sowed seeds, thought you'd get away with it sowing corruption for the future and you will reap. And of course, if you don't cut them down, then the yellow turns white and the wind blows and more and it multiplies. And it's exponential. Again, this is a pathway to apostasy. One little turn, not keeping short accounts, I'm sowing seeds to the flesh. More flesh. Now the battle's harder. Now the fight is bigger. Now there's more weeds Oh, despair, give up. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I'm just going to stop reading my Bible altogether. I don't like hanging out with Christian friends. It's so convicting. There's just a snowball's effect. And then you're not walking with Christ. That's the danger. Now, look at verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. And notice this, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Again, you've got to put your farmer's hat on positively. Okay, you recognize this morning, oh, my heart's gotten hard. I've drifted. Maybe I've been sowing seeds to the flesh. Maybe they're going to grow up into weeds down the road. What do I do? Don't grow weary. Sow to the Spirit, and you will reap from the Spirit. I'm confident that that God is kind to farmers who farm positively. He, he is kind to those who will confess their sins and turn from their sins. We do not get according to what we've done with him. He's gracious. He removes sin as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't remove every consequence, and you know that. But I think God is gracious to remove lots of consequences. Think about all the things you have not received what was due as a natural consequence to your iniquity. But God was kind. And of course we relish that we're forgiven and justified. But even the temporal consequences, God is so kind to us. And sometimes he doesn't take away all the consequences. But this encouragement is, do not grow weary in doing good. We will reap in due time. So don't lose heart. If it's time to go out and lop off dandelions and then start digging up roots, put down more grass seed, wait on the Lord. Do it. 
Don't grow weary. It's worth cultivating heart pliability. We're mixing a lot of metaphors here. Gardening and hearts. A sixth danger is a vicious cycle. No, that's what we just did. A seventh danger is apostasy. And this is where all of this has been heading. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. And this is the issue of trajectories. And if you go back to whatever grade in math it was, you learned about trajectories. Uh, That is just a direction and a velocity. You're going somewhere at a certain speed. It's a line with an arrow at the end. And the arrow is indicating that this ends up somewhere. And and you think about what what it's like to drive down the car, drive down the freeway in your car at 60 miles an hour. You're going a mile a minute. If you're off by a degree, if you're off by a degree, where are you going to be in a mile? Where are you going to be in one minute? Way off the road. Where are you going to be in an hour? Nowhere near where you intended to get. This is why small things matter at the heart level. This is why the, the, the direction of your heart, the feel of your heart, uh, you know, you, you may not have gone all the way down the path uh, of some heart idol. You may not have constructed an altar to Chemosh and sacrificed your children in the fires. But you coveted. You, you wanted what someone else had at the heart level. You may not have stolen and murdered, but you lusted. And, and, and these things are heart trajectories that are so dangerous. Listen to Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the trajectory of apostasy. Where does unchecked sin go? Where does hardness of heart lead? Eternal punishment. And you might protest, wait a second, I thought we just talked about eternal security. Yeah, eternal security is real for all those who belong to Christ. But we know Jesus from his own lips said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2 that those went out from us to demonstrate they were never of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us to demonstrate they were never apart. What does that mean? You can be a professing Christian. You can have all the trappings of Christian culture. You can be in a Christian environment. You can have Christian lingo. You can have the Christian radio station on in your car and a bumper sticker. But what does it mean to follow Christ? It means a a life patterned with course corrections. By the way, the, the warning here in Hebrews 10 about sinning willfully does not mean if anybody sins ever again after receiving Christ, you're done, it's over. This willful sinning uh, is an ongoing, continual, unbroken pattern of sin. That's what hardness of heart is. When those 
uh, sections of hard-heartedness grow and, and the whole heart just ceases to be Godward. An unbroken pattern of, well, I'm just going to sin. There's no more sacrifice available. There's no more remedy available. You've rejected the only remedy in Christ. And the only expectation at that point is the fury of God Almighty. What are the causes of hard-heartedness? Next section of our outline. The first is simple neglect. Simple neglect. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. How does hardness of heart begin? How does it grow? Uh, This is the natural tendency of our hearts. And just neglecting the correction is a cause. I, in high school, drove a 1967 Mustang. It pulled to the left. Couldn't ever really get that steering fixed. Uh, Pulling to the left is bad in America. Might not be bad in England. But we drive on the right side of the road, and pulling to the left means pulling into oncoming traffic. Both hands on the wheel all the time. That's what Second Peter indicates here. Uh, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge, supply self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't neglect these things. It takes diligence. It takes supplying. All of these based on God's promises, all of these flowing out of God's excellence and his own character. A second cause for hard-heartedness is false teaching. Stay in Second Peter, turn to chapter 2, and verse 17. After a lengthy description of false teachers, Peter describes them as springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by these he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment happened to them. That's a scary thought. What is the cause of hard-heartedness leading to apostasy there? For those who knew the gospel, false teachers that came in and said, hey, yeah, you can have the gospel and try a little bit of this slavery to sin too. Those false teachers themselves are slaves of corruption and are hell-bound. And yet they make their way into the church 
and they convince Christians that they have a better way, a, a less legalistic way, a more fun way, a more open-minded way to do the God thing. This is very prevalent in our day. It's very prevalent in churches. That, that you can have Christ without holiness. That you can be pleasing to the Lord without repentance. Those things are harsh and narrow and a bondage. Says the one who's a slave of sin. And heading to eternal destruction. And they take people with them. John MacArthur has compared them to terrorists. They, they strap bombs to themselves and they walk into a crowd of innocent people and detonate. It's a very real cause of hard-heartedness. Be careful who you listen to. A third cause is weak teaching. Turn to 1 Timothy 1. And by weak teaching, I mean the, the kind of teaching that doesn't address the heart, the, the kind of teaching that that doesn't allow for the indictments that come from Scripture, that, that doesn't believe in the implications of doctrine, the, the, the kind of teaching that either just is a pep talk, uh, a Sunday morning TED talk for how to make your life a little bit better, a little bit more pleasant, a little more hashtag blessed, rather than the cutting, incisive, double-edged sword, which is the Word of God, which is good and is what we need. If we go to church every week, week after week, if the people we tune into just make us feel better about ourselves, this is insipid teaching, weak teaching. And it actually leads to hardness of hearts. You've heard that strong teaching produces soft hearts and soft teaching produces hard hearts. There's a truth in that. Look at First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure for Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of, the God, administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, love from a good conscience, and love from a sincere faith. Some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers. They don't know what they're talking about. There's a lot of teaching out there. there there's a lot of preaching out there. But the, the weak kind of teaching that gets wrapped up in the ideas of men, in fruitless discussions, that leaves the heart unchecked, whose goal is not love from a pure life, Love from a good conscience. Love, love from a sincere faith. The, the kind of faith that is without cracks. Genuine faith. All of that is the kind of teaching that produces a hard-heartedness. A fourth cause is a lack of fellowship. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10. A moment ago we looked at the danger of apostasy beginning in verse 26. But really, we shouldn't read verse 26 out of context. Verse 26 begins with another little word, for. It's an explanation, and it goes back to verses 24 and 25. There you see the, the, um, the commands to hold fast our confession, verse 23, 
stimulate one another to love and good deeds, verse 24, and not forsake the assembly in verse 25. That's the go to church verse. Do I have to go to church? Yeah, Hebrews 10, 25 says you got to go to church. Don't forsake the assembly. Some are in the habit of doing that. But don't leave verse 25 apart from verse 26. I know in my Bible there's a, a heading in bold that kind of separates them out. That's not in the text. There's actually glue here that, that glues verse 25 to 26, and it is that little word for. Let's just read those together. Don't forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near for... If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the only expectation is the fury of God. Go to church. Why? Because apostasy. That's what verses 25 and 26 are saying. Glue them back together. See the importance of fellowship and, and the real danger and a cause of hard-heartedness is a lack of fellowship. Absence does not make the heart grow fonder. Listen, you, you decide, I don't know if I want to go to church today. I don't know if I want to go to a small group. I, I don't know if I want to be at Wellspring. I, I don't know if I want to. I just got other things I want to do right now. I just, a confession, as a pastor, I feel those things. Janet and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Um, small group night comes around, and I think, oh, man, our lives are so busy. There's a lot going on, uh, school and sports and kids and I'm just tired. Wouldn't it be great just to have movie night? Wouldn't it be great just to have a meal where we sit down together and there's nothing we have to do afterwards? When are we going to get that night? Oh, it's Thursday. Yeah, that's small group night. Yeah, we need family night. I feel those things. And, and I would go so far as to say nearly every Thursday night, I wonder, is this a fifth Thursday where we might not have small group and I could stay home? I'm just transparent confession right here. I have never, ever, ever once regretted going to small group. But I'm tempted to not go nearly every Thursday night. It's just a reality. And you feel those things in your heart. Alarm bells should be going off. Wait, why don't I want to be with God's people? And there, there are times where it's appropriate to not go to small group. Don't mishear me. But you feel that thing. Forsake the assembly? Yeah, sounds pretty good. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. No, I got other things. No. Connect verse 25 to verse 26 of Hebrews 10. Don't forsake the assembly because apostasy is serious. Listen, I think one of the ways that God will remedy that for the Christian church is persecution. Turn up the heat on the church. Christians will want to be together more. So maybe we just pray for that. I don't yet quite pray for it that way. Another cause is just the rejection of truth. We grow hard hearts anytime we reject God's truth when we see it. Listen, none of us knows all of God's truth. None of us has the Bible totally figured out. Nobody has all the answers exactly right. We're, we will always be students in the Christian life. We will always be growing in our knowledge of the word. But when you encounter God's word and you know it's the truth, and you reject it. Big time danger. Acts 19.9. Some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. And then Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples. Um, where was Paul? He was in a synagogue at Ephesus. 
He, he went to the people that had the Word of God in print in their synagogue, people who had memorized much of the Scriptures. This, these were the Jews. And, and Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, went into the synagogues first because he loved his countrymen. You need to know your Christ. And then they would reject Christ. Some would believe out of the synagogues, but in bulk, the Jews rejected Messiah. And Paul went to the Gentiles, which made him even angrier. But think about what it means here in Acts 19 that God graciously revealed truth to Jews in Ephesus. They stiff-armed the truth. And what happened next? Paul and the followers of Jesus went away. What went away with them? The witness of the truth. This is God's judicial hardening. Give me more blindness. Give me more darkness, said the blind man. Give me more folly, said the fool. Give me stone silence, cried the deaf man. I didn't believe Sunday school. Is the old Phil Kagey song. You want to stiff arm God's truth at any level. The scary thing is God may give you more of it. More rejection. Just know this in your heart. Little tiny thing. Oh, I know this displeases the Lord, but... But what? God may give you more displeasing to the Lord. God may give you more of what you're asking for. The, the worst thing that could happen to you is you get what you want when you stiff arm the truth. A sixth cause is disobedience. Any unchecked sin falls in this category. This is Hebrews 3.13. Right? It doesn't have to be the big sins. It doesn't have to be the ones that the whole world would name as wrong. Not throwing a plastic bottle into the recycling bin or whatever it is. As Christians, we have sort of the big five or the big ten, whatever it is. But Hebrews 3.13 makes it clear. Hardness of heart is not tied to that big, awful, dirty thing you can think of that that other guy does. Take care, brethren, verse 12, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called a day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And sin there in its broad, bland category. No specific sins named. But sin by its nature is a deception. It's a lie. And it's a lie that personified wants to take you away from God. What are the remedies for hard-heartedness? There are individual remedies. Uh, they're the normal ones you know. Bible reading. Prayer. Memorizing scripture, tucking away it in your heart, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Listening to sermons. Keeping good company, you know the Psalm 1 principle. Do not stand, walk, sit in the company of those who scoff at God's truth. Or the Romans 12, 2 principle, don't be squeezed into the mold of this world, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Watch who you're around. Watch what you're listening to. Watch what you're watching. Be aware of influences. Bad company corrupts good morals. All of those basic fundamental disciplines. Making your best friends, your closest friends, those who love Christ, who love His church, who love the truth. 
your best friends in life are those who are in your life who make you afraid to sin, who make you love Christ more, and who make you long for heaven. Be that kind of friend in other people's lives and seek out those kinds of friendships. That's not a command to extract yourself from the world, right? And those of you who are raising bundles of depravity and evil rugrats, you're not extracting yourself from their presence, but you go into the presence of unbelief armed by the disciplines that keep your heart close to the Lord. You ramp those things up. Listen, we're coming to the end of Wellspring. Summer's coming. Ah, school's out. Summer break. Coast. Don't coast. Where will that 67 Mustang go if you let go of the wheel? Right into oncoming traffic. The disciplines that you've formed here carry those into the summer. They don't have to look identical. I don't think anybody's going to be asking you to, to, to see your homework. But, but you've, you've forged ruts and, and patterns. This is the sowing under righteousness that reaps fruit down the line. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep seeking out fellowship where you get those encouragements. In your small groups, ask other ladies, how are you doing with those things? Encourage other ladies to take wellspring who haven't. Or remind those who have, hey, are you keeping up the things we learned? Whatever it takes to, to maintain that soft-heartedness through the summer. Regular encouragement and then well beyond the summer. There are corporate remedies. Assembling together we talked about from Hebrews 10. Being shepherded. Uh, that is being under good uh, pastoral care, small group leader care. But it means fundamentally being willing to be shepherded. Listen, someone comes into your life with God's word open and imperfectly tries to draw a connection between a principle and scripture and what is noticeable in your life. You know, the heart secret before the Lord, it's beating, but it manifests itself and it's on the outside. And, and someone comes to you and says, hey, can I ask you about that? Can I help you see a blind spot? Listen, if you want to maintain a soft heart before the Lord, you be teachable. You be shepherdable. If your first response is, hey, don't talk to me about, my, about that stuff. That's between me and the Lord. Who do you think you are? That's so invasive. That's heavy-handed. That's spiritual abuse. All those labels are out there to protect a hard heart in its hardness. Listen, don't have the expectation that a, a pastor or a small group leader with a finite brain, limited access to what's going on in your life, and his own sin is going to address perfectly what's going on in your heart. Don't have the category that, well, I don't have to repent unless he says it exactly right. Listen, if somebody's knocking on the apartment door next to yours and saying, hey, is something going on in there? I'm going, it's not my door. Boy, is he off. You got the numbers wrong? I'm off the hook. No, say, oh, the Lord's trying to get my attention. Smed has no idea what he's talking about, but, but God knows what he's doing, and I, I am hard-hearted. Boy, is he wrong about that particular issue, but yeah, I've, I've got hardness of heart. It's got to be addressed. Lord, make me teachable, pliable. 
Listen, does any finite human being ever assess the situation perfectly? No. But that's not the standard by which we're teachable or shepherdable. To be otherwise is actually to cultivate a hard heart. It is to take that which was pliable and say, let's just make it hard. Very dangerous territory. It also requires being discerning about shepherds. Look, there's a day coming at Grace Bible Church where the lampstand will be removed. I don't know when. If the Lord tarries, if, if church history is any indication, this church will not stand the test of 2,000 more years of history in faithfulness. So it means being discerning. If 10 minutes from now or 10 years from now, the shepherds aren't opening their Bibles, they're teaching false things. Listen, you, you stand before the Lord on your grip of truth. Be discerning. The Bereans, they double-checked Paul. They opened up their Bibles, cross-referenced whether what he's saying is accurate or not. So seeking out good shepherding means you being shepherdable, but it also means you having discernment about who you're hearing biblical truth from. Another corporate remedy is uh, restoration, Galatians 6. I hope you know that passage. You who are spiritual... Restore the one who is caught in any trespass. Again, that doesn't mean, aha, I caught you. It means the person is trapped. Tragically. You know, I like the illustration of the, the giant steel bear trap, the, the great teeth, the bear steps in the trap and whap, snaps on his legs. You know, what if your friend was hiking in the woods and stepped into one of those? What would you do? He's caught in any trespass. He's caught in this trap. Aha, look, I see what you did. I, I feel better than you because I didn't step on that thing. No, you, you, you jump in, you, you, you pull the trap apart, you begin to mend wounds. There's a compound fracture with blood everywhere. You get help, compassionate, restore such a one to life and vitality. That's a corporate remedy to hard-heartedness. We help each other out. Not with judgmentalism, not with an air of superiority, but with humility. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? Looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, either by the same sin or by the hypocrisy of superiority. Another corporate remedy is Matthew 18 in the church discipline process. You go in private to your brother who's sinning and show him his sin in, in private. And if he repents, case closed, you've won your brother. If he doesn't repent, take two or three with you so that everything can be established. If he repents, it's over. Still a private matter with the two or three. Never goes farther. Um, if he doesn't repent, it goes to the church. If the whole church leaning in and saying, brother, sister, soften your heart. No, thank you. I'd rather have my sin than Jesus, and I'd rather have my sin than you. Then they are removed from the church. Effectively, they remove the church from their life. But that church discipline process is designed as a remedy against hard-heartedness. It actually picks up where hard-heartedness already exists and someone is several steps down the path on the trajectory to apostasy. It is a rescue. And then there are divine remedies. All of the above, of course, are God's remedies. They are his ordained means 
But Hebrews 12, you can write down as God's discipline. He disciplines true sons. He disciplines those he loves. God brings a difficulty into your life, some hardship. It's okay to ask, is God trying to get my attention? Now, not every trial is a connection to your sin. Don't assume that for yourself or assume that for other people. God hates me, you know, um, or, or, or some trial in your life. Oh, some sin must have caused this. No, it's not always a one for one correspondence, but it's OK to ask the question. Oh, my life is hard right now. God, is there anything you want me to turn from? You're feeling glum. Well, is there something I can repent of? You just feel listless, homeless, displaced, lousy, whatever. God, is there something in my life I could put off and replace with that which pleases you? Is there encroaching hard-heartedness? And sometimes it's not. Sometimes a trial is just a trial to, to make you long for heaven more. Sometimes a trial is designed to bring you sorrow so that you will be equipped next week to help someone who is sorrowful. That's 2 Corinthians 1. We don't always know what the trials are for. Job didn't know what God was doing in his life. Job didn't know what Satan was doing in his life. It wasn't tied to some specific sin. But God has used Job in my life and in your life to accomplish great things. Sometimes it's not about you at all. But it's okay to ask, God, are you trying to get my attention? Fatherly discipline is designed by God to remedy hard-heartedness. And then the warning passages in Scripture... Um, there are many, if you want a, a list, there, I actually, do, do you have a list in your notes? Okay, there's a list there. Um, those warning passages are actually God's means to keep the elect secure. Believers read those and they go, oh, I don't want to fall away. It's possible to fall away. I don't want to fall away. And the elect are secured by the very warnings that are there in Scripture. That's one of the reasons they exist. They also exist to help us understand the category of those who professed faith in Christ turned out not to actually be believers and walked away. And then there's another remedy. This one's an interesting one, um, a morbid one. 1 Corinthians 11. Death. God can take you home before you would apostatize. That's what happened at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's table. Some of you are sick, Paul says, and some of you sleep. What does he mean by that? Uh, not soul sleep, not a coma, not taking a nap. It's a euphemism for death of a believer. And he means Corinthians at Corinth in the church have died because of their sin. In other words, God took them home. I don't know that we could ever draw a line between a circumstance and that biblical doctrine. But God knows those lines, and it definitely happens. And, and praise God that it would happen. If you belong to him, Lord, take me home before I would walk away from you fully. That's a kindness of the Lord. Think about the wellspring disciplines and their use as a tool to help cultivate soft-heartedness. 
And, and from this point forward, wh- whether the Wellspring disciplines carry the label and banner of Wellspring or if they take on different vocabulary, if, if you go from this church and, and to another church and the church doesn't have Wellspring and, and they don't talk about shepherding your heart, but they're doing all these things with different labels, don't complain that they're unbiblical. These things are, are, are labels and handles and shorthand to help you know to stay on short accounts with the Lord, to be soft-hearted, to, to be a governess of your own heart. You tell your heart what to do, what to think, how to behave. You, you, you shore up shortcomings and you beat hard areas of your heart into soft submission. It's your task as a believer before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these warnings, these very sober warnings. Thank you for the encouragements that soft hearts toward you actually bring us blessing and joy at the very purpose for which we were created. You are the greatest of all treasures. You are the source of all delight. And we are foolish and ignorant to replace you with lesser things. Oh God, keep us from being all that we could be if left to ourselves. By your grace, would you keep us for your glory in Jesus' name?